This is a very unique account. It's long. It's different. It's got a lot of, a lot of words and a lot of recounting of the story. I want us to try to go back in time this morning. If at all possible, use your imagination today to be there, perhaps not as a participant, but one of Joseph's servants or one of Israel's servants watching this unfold. Try to feel what they felt. Try to understand how they would understand it. There are three periods of history in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt um, has a fantastic history. The history is preserved so well archaeologically because of the dry climate. Uh, Egyptologists and archaeologists love to study Egyptian history. The three periods that they study are the Old, Middle, and New Kingdom. Very, um, very normal way of describing something. Old, Middle, and New. And there were intermediate periods between those of weakness in Egypt. But the Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms in Egypt were there were times where they were the most powerful nations in the Mediterranean and perhaps um, in all of the East, in the Middle East anyways, the largest, most powerful kingdoms. The story that we're looking at takes place during the first part of the Middle Kingdom, known as the 12th Dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs, the Middle Bronze Period. Interestingly, uh, Scientists and historians describe that in the beginning of this middle kingdom, there was a mega drought that covered the entire world. Uh, there's little scientists look at tree rings and all sorts of things, and they see this mega drought that covered the entire world, which is fascinating because Genesis 41:56 tells us that there was a drought that covered all the land. And so when we come to the story today, what we find out is the drought had spread. It wasn't just in Egypt. It was everywhere. And of course, then, in the Mediterranean, a place like Canaan is greatly affected. There was a powerful vizier, a, a prime minister, if you will, of Egypt during this 12th dynasty in this Middle Kingdom. He was known by the title Mentuhotep. Uh, you can go to Luxor, Egypt if you want, and you can see a headless statue of Mentuhotep with some writings and some inscriptions about it. What was most fascinating about Mentuhotep in this Middle Kingdom, this vizier, is that the inscriptions in the archaeological records that have been discovered show that he was the most powerful vizier called second to Pharaoh. And, for example, Emil Bruch. An Egyptologist wrote in, their, in this person's study of Egyptian history, says, in a word, our Mentuhotep appears as the alter ego of the king. When he arrived, the great personages bowed before him at the outer door of the royal palace. And what makes this even more fascinating is there is no other historical or archaeological record of any vizier in Egypt who was treated with the kind of authority and honor that Mentuhotep was. Other Egyptologists describe him as being next to Pharaoh or having the second chariot. Well, it shouldn't surprise, I guess, those who are faithfully reading the Scripture. For me, it was a bit of a surprise. I was like, wow, so Egyptian history matches up so well with biblical history because the Bible describes a vizier of the king who was next to the king riding in the second chariot. Everyone bowed down before him. Huh, huh. And Egypt archaeology describes this guy who 
was next to the king at the same time period who rode in the second chariot and everyone bowed down before him. Kind of fascinating, I think. Um, perhaps Mentuhotep also was known as Zaphnath Panea, or his Hebrew name, Joseph. Can't prove that, but it sure seems an amazing coincidence of archaeological concern. So, Mentuhotep, or Zaphnath Panea, or Joseph, has made a life for him in Egypt. It's been nearly 20 years, around 22, we think, years since he was stripped from his coat and his life, as it were, sold as a slave into Egypt. And we've seen in our reading that he has been elevated into this grand status. Now, when you read this, a lot of times we read the ending knowing what's going to happen, but try to think of it through Joseph's eyes. Something to think about. I'm not sure that in the reading of this story that Joseph is interested in reuniting with his family. I'm not sure he's in, not just his brothers, but I don't think anyone. I think he's made a good life for himself. This is his new reality. There's no hope to go home. And why would he want to? He was hated there, and he's beloved here. Think about that, because when you think about the things we read that he does, I think that he is trying not necessarily to find ways to either torment or necessarily in every regard test his brothers so much as he's just living how any one of us might respond with a, who do these guys think they are? What is going on here? In other words, Joseph doesn't know the future. He doesn't know how they're going to respond. He doesn't even know they're coming. He's as shocked as they are when they show up to get food. And so into our story we, we come, and there's really two parts to it. There's the first sojourn into Egypt and the second sojourn. Drought has spread through Canaan. Egypt has food because They've been planning ahead for seven years, right? Egypt has food. The rest of the Mediterranean does not. We open our story with Israel frustrated with his sons. The text literally tells us he looks around and says, why are you looking at each other like that? In other words, what is wrong with you dullards? Get down to Egypt. Get us some food. The boys go, all right. Good idea. So 10 brothers go down to Egypt, not 12 and not even 11, 10. And then they get into Egypt in this journey south. They stand before the grand vizier. They're probably standing in line and they're working their way up. And then they come to the place where he's determining as the judge who gets the grain, who doesn't get the grain. He's disposing of the whole matter and it hits Joseph. Wow. I know them. These are those jerks who tried to kill me and sold me into slavery, put me here. But they don't recognize him. They have no idea who he is. He is more Egyptian than he is Hebrew. If you think about it, he was 17 when he left. He's, 20, he's been 22 years. He's more Egyptian. They bow before him. And it says, Joseph remembered the dreams. I knew they would. 
One day, I said they were going to bow before me. Twice I dreamed this, and here they are bowing before me. Joseph, this Egyptian royalty, disguised as he is, is calloused toward them. It says he treats them roughly. Now, when we read that, we have to understand two things. One, Joseph is treating them naturally. These are his enemies, right? They hate him. They want to kill him. He has the power now. But the text also says, so that he might test them. Who, who are they really? I mean, it's been 20-some years. Are they still, still the same guys they were? Are they still the same ones who threw him into the pit and would not spare though his soul was crying out in anguish as a teenage boy? Are they still the same? And so he tests them. First thing he does, he says, you're spies. And I don't know, there's a lot of this is speculation, but there's other people there coming for food. And I can just picture them going, like, why is he pointing them out? Maybe because there's 10 grown men coming in strong chieftains. Like, what other purpose do they have? But everyone else from all over the region is coming for food. Why would he naturally assume that we're spies? We, what have we done? And they kind of look around. We're not spies. And so he says, no, you're spies. And the only way they, can, they think they can assuage his suspicion is by telling them their family story. Now, we know that, that he actually asked them very pointedly their family story. Prove you're not. Prove who you are. Where are you from? Who's your family? Do you have a father? Do you have a younger brother? Kind of a very pointed question. But still, you know, they're like, uh, uh, yes, and let's just tell him everything. After all, this guy holds our life, our kids' lives in his hands. And so they tell him everything. And Joseph replies with, yep, you're spies. And so he throws him into prison for three days. Kind of like when they threw him into a pit and he was thrown into prison. Kind of seems a little fitting, right? Let him stew a little bit in prison. Now, I don't know, and we don't know, if Joseph has a plan for three days or he's just throwing him into prison while he figures things out. But they're there for three days in a prison house. After three days, he tells them, okay, you probably don't know this because I'm an Egyptian, but I actually do fear God. I respect Elohim. And so you have a chance. I'll give you a chance. Prove your story to me. Go back home to Canaan. Get your little brother. Bring him back. And I'll know then you're not just trying to fill me full of lies and that you're not spies. Pause here for a moment. Joseph is doing probably two things here. One thing he's doing is he's testing them. How are they going to respond? But the other thing he's doing, I believe, when you look at the whole story, he misses Benjamin. The child that he never got to spend with his little brother. Benjamin would have been a little child when he was sold. Benjamin probably don't, doesn't, won't even recognize Joseph, but he'll recognize little brother. He wants to see Benjamin. There's both motives in there. He is testing them, but also like, I 
Of all the, of all the brothers I wanted to see today, it wasn't these ten. It was Ben. That's who I wanted to see. So go back, bring him back to me, and we'll talk about it. Here, take some grain so you can go back and feed your families. It's a trip. Go back and do that. But Simeon, he needs to stay in prison. Why Simeon? I don't know. He's not the oldest. Doesn't seem to have that much going for him. But Simeon. I have a theory. This is my theory, so don't say it's the word of God. It doesn't seem like Simeon is the most liked out of all the brothers. He's the one that causes Jacob so much problems with Simeon and Levi, remember. Uh, later on, we, we find that, that he's just, he just is sort of in the cursing of Simeon. Um, when he's, well, the blessing, which kind of ends up being a curse in the end. Simeon is kind of called, like, kind of worthless. Um, and so I think maybe the test is, so Joseph was the beloved, and they abandoned him. Will they abandon the guy that nobody really cares that much about? The brother that's kind of like, Simeon. And we know, I know this also in Jacob's like, idea because when he comes back to them and they come back and they say, uh, Simeon's, Simeon's in prison, <laughs> Jacob says, Joseph's dead and Simeon's dead too. I mean, like, wow, dad, way to, way to look out for your son. Um, so I think maybe what he's doing here is he's saying like, like the favored, they hated, and will they favor the hated? <laughs> Will they care about the one that nobody really cares about? Will they leave him here to rot, get their food, and go home? Well, they're, they're okay with it, but they look at one another. And this is so telling in verse 21, 22. They look at one another, and they speak in Hebrew rather than in, in any dialect that, that they think that this vizier can understand. And they said, the reason why we are suffering is we're guilty. We're guilty of a crime committed 22 years ago. And specifically, they're saying we're guilty because when our brother's cries were pleading from the pit, we wouldn't listen. When his soul was in anguish, we didn't care. And then Reuben, remember Reuben, and, and Joseph hadn't heard, seen the second part of Reuben's plan. Remember, Reuben had, had said, hey, throw him in the pit, don't kill him. And then Reuben had planned to come back and release him, but Joseph was sold before Reuben came back. Joseph had no idea that Reuben was going to come back and release him. But Reuben says to them, I told you, I told you not to hurt him. God is judging us. His blood is required of us. I think they'd had some nightmares for the last 20-some years. I think they'd had some bad conscience and this moves Joseph and he goes out and he weeps note that weeping of Joseph well they go back to Canaan they get part way back and one of the brothers opens up his sack and he puts it open he's like uh, guys my money's in here and they're like uh, it must have been an oversight. Let's keep going home. All right. So they get home. They tell, as opposed to when they lied to Jacob the first time about Joseph, they tell him everything. 
And you can kind of read the hemming and hawing a little bit toward they get to the end, and they're like, and um, so we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob's like, nope, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I don't care what happens. Simeon's dead anyway, so Joseph's dead. Simeon, Benjamin's not going with you. Dad, we can't go back without him. It's not going to happen. He refuses. And then they all open their sacks up, and all of their money is in there. And now they're terrified. We were called spies, and now we're going to be called thieves. We just stole from the most powerful man in the most powerful nation around us. And we not just stole from him, but he knows our faces. Like he looked at us in the eyes, and he said, you're spies, and now we're thieves. And they're terrified. They're not delaying to go back, by the way, with Benjamin, I believe, because they don't want to go back. Jacob won't let them without, with, with Benjamin. And so they, they just they were kicking the can down the road, and pretty soon the drought thickens, and now they're all going to die. Starvation is looming. And so they come, Judah comes to dad and he's like, dad, we got to do this. Jacob's like, no, you're not taking Benjamin. Dad, I'll be surety for him. Reuben had previously offered to take my sons if I don't bring them back and that couldn't persuade him. Maybe Judah can persuade him, they're thinking. Judah looks at Israel and he says, us and our children, your grandchildren, are going to die. We have to go back. The threat of starvation that they will not survive, and Jacob knows this, they will all die. He says, okay. And he says this, I can just imagine the heart-rending cry in Jacob when he goes, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If I lose everything, I lose it all. Go ahead. And Judah says, I, I'm going to, I will be sure, I will bring him back. And so they head back toward Egypt. This is the second soldier in the second half of the story. They arrive in Egypt. And I, and, and I am convinced that they are, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine how they felt. They are terrified. This is it. Like, like, this is the equivalent of standing before a judge uh, who hates you, as far as they are thinking, and you have no proof against your crimes, and it's the death penalty. And you're not only going to stand in front of him to explain yourself, you're going to stand in front of him, explain yourself, and ask for more food. They're terrified. They brought back all that money. They didn't spend it. They brought back all that silver. They brought back double it. They brought back um, pistachios. Like, like we're throwing almonds. Let's throw anything we can at this. Myrrh. Any gifts we can just to something. I mean, because thieves don't give, right? Thieves take. So they can't accuse us of being thieves if we're giving so much more to him but they don't even get to see him. They're standing in line, and a guy pulls them out and says, you, you 11, or you 10, uh, um, 
uh, Reuben, no, I'm sorry, Simeon is not with them. He's in prison, right? Come with me. We knew it. <laughs> We're done. We're getting pulled out of line. And they go to Joseph's Mentuhotep's mansion, his palace. And he's not there. And the steward is basically saying, just wait here. So I know that this is un, not something people do anymore, but when I was young, when I had done bad things, my parents spanked me. And what was worse than the spanking was when my dad would say, go into my room and wait for me. And I am convinced that he took as long as he could before he came to discipline me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, oh, man, this one's going to be about, oh, he's not, uh, you know, I'm just like freaking out because it's getting worse and worse with every ticking moment. Joseph says, send them to my house, and then he doesn't come. And they're like, we're done. We're done. It, we're, uh, it's all over. They, they like are doing everything they can. They're begging the steward. They're like throwing their case to him, not even Joseph. They're like, hey, we didn't even know there was money in our sack. Uh, we didn't do it. And, and I think it's a little bit coy, but the steward says, oh, um, your God and your father's God, he put that money in your sack. I, I got your payment. Okay. <laughs> your, our God put the money in the sack? Yeah. You're, I got your payment. Okay, so that's not it. Um, you know, there's more questions than answers. And then at noon, Joseph arrives. And the way the text writes it, it's like he arrives. If, imagine it like with the doors flinging open. Like, here he comes. And he comes in. The terrified men, they fall on the ground in front of him. The second time, they bow before him. There was two dreams. And this time it says they fall and their faces are prostr prostrate. In other words, they're not just bowing, their faces are in the ground in front of him. Joseph looks at them, they offer their gifts. But Joseph responds, was asking them, oh, how are you doing? How's your father? Are things well with him? Is this the brother? He sees Benjamin. And the text tells us, go and look at this when you have time. It says he saw, saw Benjamin. And it says he saw his mother's son. You, you know what he saw, right? He saw Benjamin and he saw mom. Mom that had died shortly before he was made a slave. He saw his little brother. And he saw mom and his little brother. And probably, like I said, given the ages, Benjamin's like, I don't even, he's, he's probably in his 20s now. He's like, I don't, why, why am I like the center of attention in all this story? Why did I have to be here? And it says that Joseph, he says to Benjamin, he looks at me and says, God be with you. And he runs out of the room. And he weeps in his chamber. Second time he weeps in the story. He's moved washes his eyes, comes out and says, let's eat. Um, you uh, 11 sit on this table over here and then Joseph has a personal small table over here. 
The reason for this is the text tells us that Egyptians viewed the Hebrews as a bit icky. Um, They were an abomination to them to eat with them. They were were Egyptians. (laughs) These Haberu, they are wanderers, they're Bedouins, they're shepherds. And so they would not eat. And so he is maintaining his Egyptian status. But as the boys sit down, I can imagine perhaps Asher says to Naphtali, Hey, did you notice that we're all sitting in this table like Reuben's at the front and it goes all the way down toward Benjamin? Like, and we're in perfect order. And, and we've gone through the story of the brothers, right? Who can keep track of their ages? and their birth order with the wives and the concubines and all that number. Somehow, this, Egy- this guy practices divination. This guy knows the future. He seats us in birth order. And, and it didn't escape us that Benjamin got five times the food of everyone else. This is weird. And he's over there eating by himself. And it says at the end of the text, and they made merry with him. Now, that doesn't mean that they rehashed old times. (laughs) It simply means that for a moment, the brothers are relieved. I mean, if he was going to kill them and throw them in prison and he had released Simeon to them, like if he was going to do this, he would have already done it. We've, We've dodged the bullet. In fact, he's even promised that he's going to fill our sacks up with grain tomorrow. We're going to make it. Dad's going to be so happy that Benjamin's coming back with us. We've got all of us back together. Ah, they're relieved. In the morning, right away, they get their donkeys together. The stewards get their sacks of grain thrown on there. They take out out of Egypt. They're gone. They're going back home. Let's get out of here before he changes his mind. We're out of here. But Joseph had told a steward, put their money back in. And then also put my silver cup, which was the symbol of his authority. Put my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, this, the previous time, there's sort of debate as to why he gave them money. Was it to, like, trick them or was it to provide for them? It seems like it was to provide for them because the text says because of the provisions on the way. Like, he was actually being generous. Joseph's name actually means uh, abundance or generosity. And he was being generous to them. But this time, that's not what's happening. Because he says, now wait a few minutes, give them a head start. And when they get out of the city a little bit, go after them and accuse them of stealing my cup. So obviously, this isn't generosity, right? Something else is going on. What's going on? Why in the world does Joseph do this? He's either wisely testing them but he's, they've already passed the test, right? That doesn't make much sense. They didn't leave Simeon to rot. Or, and this is what I think, this is speculation, this is my opinion. I think he's made a life for himself in Egypt. And you know what would only make it work better? Benjamin can join me. After all, Benjamin shouldn't be around those guys anyways. <laughs> I think he wants Benjamin. So he says, put the cup in Benjamin's sack. And, tell, and, and then tell them, to you know, accuse them of stealing my cup. And when they come back, they, they, when they come back I'm going to say, well, Benjamin stole. He's got to be my slave. The rest of you can go back home. 
Benjamin will stay with me and be my slave. And I don't believe he had any intent of making Benjamin his slave. Rather saying, we're going to be reunited with my real family. The ones who care about me. That's not wrong on his part, by the way. If that's what's going on, that's very normal. <laughs> Why wouldn't he want this? That's not, vindic- that's not uh, vindictiveness. That's survival. That's natural. But something happens that that's not the way it, the story turns out. I think that's Joseph's intention. That's not how the story turns out, though. The first odd thing is that when the steward accuses them of having stealing the cup, they say, search our sacks. No, if anybody has stolen anything, kill him. Because nobody did. They're, they're convinced that they are, they are innocent. But when it's found in Benjamin's sack, you know what they could have done and what they did do in the past. They could have said, Benjamin, why'd you do that? Dude, you're going to have to go pay for this. We'll catch you later. But they don't. Instead, they say, boys, we're all going back to become slaves in Egypt. We're in it together. And so they all go back to Egypt. So Joseph tries again, and he says, the one who committed the crime, he'll be my slave. And Judah's like, no. And they're like, no, we're, we're all your slaves. God has found out our iniquity We're your slaves. And this is where it gets even weirder. Judah requests a private conversation conversation with Mentuhotep. Why? He's like, come take us. Because the plan of the brothers is we're in it together. We're going to all become slaves. We're not leaving Benjamin here. But Judah comes alongside and he pleads with Joseph. And he says, You don't understand. If Benjamin doesn't go back, my father, Ben's father, is dead. Can you imagine the sort of emotional ripples when Judah looks at Joseph and says, he's already lost one son. He's looking at the son. But he can't lose another. I can't let that happen to him. And then Judah does the most surprising thing in all of the story. He says, send everyone back. I'll take Benjamin's place. I'll become a slave in his stead. That's why he wanted a private conversation. I don't think he wanted the other brothers to know his plan. Because his plan was, take me. I'll take the place. Save them. We didn't read this because it's for next week. But this is the third time that Joseph cries. And he runs out and he cannot contain himself. And he begins to cry in front of everyone. What's going to happen? We'll look at next week in the story. And I just want to take a few minutes today as we have thought through this very moving story. Think through a couple of thoughts. So, first of all, I would like to say that the point or the moral of the story, if you will, is found in chapter 45. 
So we're actually leaving the main point of the text to next week. What I'm going to say is these are not the main points of the text. These are side notes. The main one is next week. But maybe perhaps indulge me for a couple of devotional thoughts. Two things struck me when I was reading and studying this story. The first thing that struck me was the three times that Joseph weeps. Now, not just struck me in the sense, wow, this was emotional, but what, why? Why does Joseph weep these three times? What moves him these three times? The first time in 42.11 is the brother's imperfect repentance, uncertain character. I don't even know if they love God. Not even saying anything about that they were stalwarts in morality by any stretch. But Joseph, the true victim in the story, is moved toward those who hurt him and abused him and hated him when, and they moved toward it, I'm not saying there is forgiveness and repentance and all that happening, I'm simply saying he's moved when they finally admit their guilt. He's moved when they actually say, essentially, when he says, oh, they do care. It bothered them a bit to throw me in that pit. And that's when he's moved with compassion. He's moved because their hearts and their consciences had burned for decades over their grievous sin. And might I just say as a devotional thought, while incomplete and imperfect relational healing for wrongs that are done requires much more than this. This is incomplete. Complete healing requires much more than this. But it always begins, relational healing always begins when the guilty party confesses and expresses remorse. With no ands, buts, or ifs. It doesn't solve all the problems, my beloved brothers and sisters, but it's the start to simply say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Not with, but you know how I often get. But you know, but you shouldn't have made me so mad. I'm sorry. I was wrong. That's what moves Joseph, is simply to know that they wept a few tears for him. (laughs) The second time he weeps is when he sees Benjamin. A devotional thought for you and for me. Isn't it been a stream through Genesis, the broken and dysfunctional covenant family? I mean, not just this one, but Abraham, and Isaac, and now Jacob, and the wives, and the sisters, and Laban. It always seems broken, doesn't it? Perhaps there's a little bit of an encouragement um, that the biblical patriarchs understand a little bit about the broken and dysfunction you experience in your family. <laughs> that perhaps it's not such a foreign thing. You're not alone, even historically. So I guess be encouraged. Um, If your broken family gives you pain, you're not alone. And be encouraged. There is yet hope for good to come through it. But we ought to push against the curse. And we don't accept the broken and dysfunction and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. We push against it. Or as Romans chapter 13 says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all? Seek peace, pursue it? And Joseph weeps then. And the third time he weeps is Judah's private conversation. Cries openly, could not restrain himself. Judah. Judah's finally living up to his purpose. Judah's a lion's whelp. Judah's finally found some backbone. He's supposed to lead the family. And his tribe will be the family that goes first in the conquest. Judah's family with the lion symbol in front of them. But he has acted everything the opposite of a lion. And here in the end, he acts a little bit like a lion, finally. He's been very disappointing. I think he does better than he probably knew when he courageously acts to offer himself in Benjamin's place, truly believing that he would become a slave in Egypt like Joseph. It's quite the story arc, isn't it? I'll just put this one. Put it this way. This expression of true grace, though flawed, and from a flawed man, from the most unlikely source, is what moves Joseph to reveal his identity and change his plan. Remember, Joseph's like, leave Benjamin here. And now he reveals his identity and says, bring everybody here. And it was this little bit of grace, courage, that Judah shows. Expressions of grace often lead toward more expressions of grace. But I was struck by the motions. But finally, I was struck by the Judah arc. This is the most, the strangest part of the story. Not because of Judah. She's part of the story. But if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Judah is important for another reason. It is the descendant of Judah that we really think about when we read the Bible. And we find out that Judah becomes the hinge upon which the entire story arc shifts. Yes, the same Judah who went after the prostitute who was his daughter-in-law. The hinge upon which the story arc changes is Judah. Why? He doesn't deserve it, him personally, because it's always been about Eve's seed. It's always been about Seth's seed. It's always been about Noah's seed. It's always been about Abraham's seed. It's always been about Isaac and Jacob's seed. And it's always been about Judah's seed. This is even the chiastic center of the story of Joseph, is this little phrase right here. Everything about it is screaming, this is the center. Judah offers himself in the stead of Benjamin. And he does it because Benjamin is innocent and Jacob is suffering. But Judah's son, Jesus, offers himself to die in our, our place because we are guilty and deserving of suffering. Romans 5. For scarcely for a righteous man will one day, yet perhaps for a good man like Benjamin, someone perhaps like Judah would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we are yet sinners, Christ dies for us in our stead. So see Judah as a shadow of redemption 
through sacrifice, but rest in Jesus as he has alone has accomplished your eternal redemption and reconciliation with God through his own sacrifice when he offered himself up in your stead.